Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome back, everyone. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And just a minute from now, the story of the Battle of King's Mountain, the turning point in the American War of Independence, and a battle which every American student of history, or not, should know. A few notes to share with you before our story begins. The first note being that I'm going to take time telling this story because it deserves it. But 1780 and 1781 and the Southern Campaign tend to get ignored, yet they're the most important to the outcome of the American Revolution and the freedom we enjoy today. Today we tend to forget the price that was paid by so many for the fragile freedom we have. We tend to forget that the American Revolution lasted for eight long and bloody years, that Americans were deeply divided and used as pawns by the British to achieve Britain's dream of subjugating North America. And when we drive through the many counties and small towns along the East Coast and inland, from Massachusetts to South Carolina, Seeing names on our maps and on highway signs and markers, most of those names are unfamiliar to us. My wife and I watched a movie recently that featured the little town of Marion, South Carolina, and I couldn't help but wonder how many viewers know that this town was named in honor of Francis Marion, an American patriot known as the Swamp Fox, who was a wealthy landowner who wanted no part of British rule and chose to fight his own guerrilla war from the swamps and backwoods of South Carolina near the P.D. and Lynch's Rivers, harassing the British and Tory loyalists with every chance he got. In that proud state of South Carolina, the names of hundreds of men and women, not all Carolinians, but all patriots, many forgotten today, are honored as having taken part in over 200 battles and skirmishes, more than any other state in the War for Independence. Names like Benjamin Cleveland, a North Carolinian, who called up 200 fighting men to go with him to battle Major Ferguson at King's Mountain, and after that stunning American victory that left Ferguson dead on the mountain, rode home to his farm on Ferguson's captured horse. There was Scottish-born James Johnston, another North Carolinian from Tryon County, who was a proven fighter of Indians and Tories. Colonel William Campbell, a Virginian, who married Patrick Henry's daughter, and who fought in Virginia and the Carolinas constantly earning fame at King's Mountain and serving with Green against Cornwallis later at Guilford Courthouse and the Cowpens. Battles we'll cover in this story. Then there was John Sevier, a Tennessean Indian fighter who joined forces with Isaac Shelby and Joseph McDowell again to fight Major Ferguson at King's Mountain, pitting their tried-and-true Pennsylvania long rifles against Ferguson's brand-new breech-loading rifles, rifles that could fire five shots in a minute and rifles that could be fired while laying in a prone position. A huge advantage in warfare. And there was General Thomas Sumter, known as the Fighting Gamecock, who unleashed holy hell on the British after British Tories burned his farm and abused his incapacitated wife. Then there was Colonel William Moultrie, an Indian fighter and later governor, known for the first defense of Charleston in 1776, as well as his Liberty Flag, 
which eventually became the flag for South Carolina. Then there was Andrew Pickens, nicknamed the Wizard Owl by the Cherokee, along with General Daniel Morgan, the true hero of Saratoga, whose sharpshooters defeated the British at the Cowpens, a pivotal battle which followed King's Mountain, all under the command of General Washington's most effective leader in war, at least in my opinion, the Quaker general with a distinctive bearing as well as a limp that never seemed to get in his way, Nathaniel Green. They and the men who fought with them all played part in making America a free and independent nation. Some became generals, governors, and statesmen. Some returned to their farms and log homes and faded into history. But it is to them and those who never gave up the fight that we owe our freedom today. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and another chapter in our American Revolution series. This time, we're asking you to join us as we look back at a very important turning point in American history, the Southern Campaign in the War for Independence, 1780, and the darkest days of the Revolution, days which led to the Battle of Kings Mountain in South Carolina, a decisive victory for the American rebels who wanted no part of what was becoming a brutal British rule, and a stunning defeat for a growing number of Americans who were known as British loyalists, called Tories, who had pledged their allegiance to the King of England and had taken up arms against their own countrymen, committing atrocities against neighbors who were suspected to have rebel sympathies, suffering the same in return, and becoming the forward shock troops in battle for the British regulars. They were what Hawkeye from the last of the Mohegans might have called cannon fodder for the British. The Battle of Kings Mountain took place October 7, 1780, in the foothills of South Carolina, and it was led in part by stalwart and independent Scotch-Irish frontiersmen from beyond the Alleghenies, men who built their own log homes, survived, and raised families, and fought Indians, entirely on their own, as well as North Carolinians and Virginia volunteer militiamen, all of whom were responding to the loud and immediate threat made by British Major General Patrick Ferguson and his largely Tory force, a threat that he would soon destroy all the remaining rebels, which he called by the old Scottish term Whigs, that stood in the way of British occupation, along with their homes and their families. Burn them all and put them to the sword, he threatened, before they come for you and your wives and homes. And as our story will reveal, it was no subtle boast. Rebel hopes of freedom from the king's rule in South Carolina by 1780 had been pretty much laid to waste by poor military leadership and a brutal British occupation. In part one, we set the stage for you in South Carolina so you can understand the events that led to the Battle of Kings Mountain and beyond that to the Cowpens and to Yorktown. The Battle of Kings Mountain occurred during one of the bleakest periods of the Revolution a major change in British military strategy had again shifted the scene of action to the South in 1778. Faced by a discouraging campaign in the North and assuming that the reputed loyalist sympathies of the South would be more conducive to a victory there, 
the British War Ministry had dictated the immediate subjugation of the South. With the conquered southern provinces as the base of operations, the War Office planned to crush Washington's armies in the north and east between offensives from north and south, and thus bring the defeat of the more stubborn revolutionary northern colonies. Unimpeded by effective resistance, this southern campaign swept unchecked through Georgia and part of South Carolina during 1778 and 1779. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And now, back to our show. Just as effective as the military strength was, the psychological campaign to turn brother against brother, stirring up hatred and distrust against colonists who chose not to side with Britain, encouraging the burning and looting of their homes and farms by countrymen who pledged their loyalty to Britain. And when the American colonists retaliated, the British puppet masters took advantage of that by stoking fear among the growing number of British loyalists that they would never be safe until the wild and untamed rebels, Whigs, were killed, and that these British loyalists needed the power of Britain's armies to protect them and bring peace back to the region. This was British colonialism at its peak, using a divide-and-conquer strategy that works for political parties just as well as it does for invading powers. It's impossible to listen and understand this without knowing that America was only 250 years ago, an occupied country, occupied by the largest armed force in the world at that time on both land and sea. The surrender of General Benjamin Lincoln's American army at Charleston in May 1780 greatly strengthened the British hold on South Carolina. General Benjamin Lincoln had failed an attack on British-held Savannah and retreated to Charleston with his 5,000 American troops including French and American naval ships. But British General Clinton had many more men at his disposal, three times as many, 15,500, and a plan to place Charleston under siege. Apparently Lincoln didn't see it coming, or he would have abandoned Charleston and headed for a more defendable spot. Charleston was surrounded and placed under siege, and General Lincoln had no choice after two months but to surrender. What the absolute shame was, was that almost all the southern militia was forced to surrender, leaving their homes, farms, and family open to raiding and criminal behavior from Tories as well as British troops, totally destroying morale and any hope for freedom. Why did Washington pick General Benjamin Lincoln, you might ask? As a major general involved in Washington's northern campaign, Lincoln had remained pretty much untested usually arriving at daylight and a dollar short of any serious fighting, and once narrowly escaping Cornwallis's trap and managing to keep his 2,000-man Continental Army intact. He must have talked a good game, however, because Washington had plans for him in the Southern Campaign, and Washington was in desperate need of good generals. 
Lincoln rejoined Washington outside New York in August of 1778 and was appointed commander of the Southern Department in September of that year. Washington sent Lincoln, Lafayette, and Lee, that was Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee, to the Southern Department to oppose the British Army under Clinton and Cornwallis, both of whom were good military strategists, both of whom controlled large armies and navy. As mentioned, General Benjamin Lincoln participated in the unsuccessful French-led siege of Savannah, Georgia, in October of 1779, after which he retreated to Charleston. He took command of the garrison of Charleston in March of 1780, and soon the city was surrounded by a sizable British force dispatched from New York. After a relatively brief siege, Lincoln was forced to surrender more than 4,000 American militiamen to Lieutenant General Sir Henry Clinton on May 12, 1780. But at least he did so in a way that allowed a portion of the South Carolina militia to escape, as well as some Continental forces, including those under Lafayette, and that greatly annoyed the British toward Lincoln. Lincoln had pleaded with the South Carolina legislature to arm 1,000 enslaved African Americans to ward off the approaching British. But rather than see armed slaves, the Dove legislature began negotiations with the British commanders to allow the British forces to pass through South Carolina. This was tantamount to the farmer allowing the fox entrance to the chicken coop, provided that the fox would only pass through. The loss of the Southern Army at Charleston was one of the worst continental defeats of the war, but there were more coming. General Lincoln was denied the honors of war and surrendering due to the British annoyance at his facilitating the escape of South Carolina militia units and some of the Continental forces. Lincoln was paroled, and in the court of inquiry, no charges were ever brought against him. The British subsequently sought to enlist large numbers of black soldiers, to whom they gave muskets and the promise of freedom. After being exchanged for the British Major General William Phillips in November of 1780, General Benjamin Lincoln returned to Washington's main army. He led a large portion of the army south from Head of Elk, Maryland to Hampton, Virginia, to march to the west to Yorktown where the British were encamped. Incredibly, Lincoln played a major role in the siege of Yorktown and the surrender of Lord Cornwallis on October 19, 1781. Cornwallis, who was hiding in a cave on the banks of the York River, pled illness, and so did not attend the surrender ceremony, choosing instead to send his second in command, the Irish General Charles O'Hara. General Washington refused to accept Cornwallis's sword from O'Hara, directing O'Hara to present it instead to General Benjamin Lincoln, Washington's own second in command. After the fall of Charleston, and encouraged by the British successes, the Royalist and Tory elements of the Georgia and South Carolina lowlands rose in increasingly large numbers to the support of the Royal English cause. Soon most of South Carolina, except a few districts in the Piedmont, were overrun by British and Tory forces directed by Cornwallis, while he was maturing plans for the invasion of North Carolina. And when we say overrun, that means the average Whig colonist had his livestock stolen his farm and home burned, and his wife and daughters, if they did not escape in time, molested by Tory raiders, often in the company of British troops. It was a terror campaign to turn the entire state Tory. British forces then campaigned in the back country, capturing the key towns of Georgetown, Chiraw, Camden, 96, and Augusta. 
Clinton returned to New York on the 5th of June, 1780, after the southern remnants of the Continental Army were defeated in May of 1780 at the Battle of Waxhaws, tasking Lord Cornwallis with the pacification of the remaining portions of the state. The Battle of Waxhaws, also known as Buford's Massacre, took place May 29, 1780, near Lancaster, South Carolina, between a Continental Army force led by Abraham Buford and a mainly Loyalist force led by British officer Bannistray Tarleton, who you'll often hear nicknamed as Bloody Bannistray or Bloody Tarleton. Buford refused an initial demand to surrender, but when his men were attacked by Tarleton's cavalry, many threw down their arms to surrender. Buford apparently attempted to surrender himself. However, when Tarleton was shot at during the truce, causing his horse to fall and trap him, Loyalist and British troops were outraged at the breaking of the truce in this manner and proceeded to fall on the rebels, or so one version goes. While Tarleton was trapped under his dead horse, men continued killing the Continental soldiers, including men who were not resisting. Little quarter was given to the Patriots. Of the 400 or so Continentals, 113 were killed with sabers, 150 so badly injured they could not be moved, and 53 prisoners were taken by the British and Loyalists. Tarleton's quarter and Buford's quarter thereafter became common expressions for refusing to take prisoners, and at the Battle of King's Mountain, it was Buford's quarter that was heard shouted as things got ugly. That story coming in part two. In subsequent battles in the Carolinas in 1780, few of the defeated were taken alive by either side. This Battle of Waxhaws became the subject of an intensive propaganda campaign by the Continental Army to bolster recruitment and incite resentment against the British. The Patriot resistance remaining in South Carolina consisted of militia under commanders such as Thomas Sumter, William Davy, and Francis Marion. Washington, who was, who was hard-pressed in the North for army, sent Continental Army regiments south, consisting of the Maryland Line and the Delaware Line, under the temporary command of Major General Jean Baron de Kalb. Departing New Jersey April 16, 1780, they arrived at the Buffalo Ford on the Deep River, 30 miles south of Greensboro. In July, General Horatio Gates, the hero of Saratoga, in quotes, arrived in camp July 25th, 1780, to take command. I say hero of Saratoga in quotes because that was the lie he gave to the Continental Congress following that battle, which the Americans won decisively, thanks to the brave actions of not General Gates, but Morgan's Rifles, Benedict Arnold, and others. But Gates was flexing his muscle using friends in Congress to try to oust General Washington and have himself, Gates, placed in charge. Now we find Gates in control of what's left of our southern army, and he's about to get it destroyed. Two days later, July 27, 1780, Gates will order his army to take the direct road to Camden, against the advice of his officers, including Otto Holland Williams. Williams noted the country they were marching through was, quote, by nature barren, abounding with sandy plains, intersected by swamps, and very thinly inhabited, end quote and what few inhabitants they may come across were most likely hostile. All of the troops had been short of food and starving since arrival at the Deep River. On August 7th, Gates was joined by 2,100 North Carolina militiamen under the command of General Richard Caswell. At Rugley's Mill, 15 miles north of Camden, 
Seven hundred Virginia militia under the command of General Edward Stevens joined Gates' Grand Army, as Gates called it. In addition, Gates had Armand's Legion. However, at this stage, Gates no longer had the help of Marion's or Sumter's men, and in fact had sent 400 of his Continentals to help Sumter with a planned attack on a British supply convoy. Gates also refused the help of Colonel William Washington's cavalry. Apparently, Gates planned on building defensive works five and a half miles north of Camden in an effort to force British abandonment of that important town. So apparently, Gates felt that if he built a fort five miles north of Camden, the British would somehow want to run. Gates told his aide, Thomas Pinckney, he had no intention of attacking the British with an army consisting mostly of militia. Camden was garrisoned by about a thousand men under Lord Rawdon. General Cornwallis, alerted to Gates's movement on August 9th, marched from Charleston with reinforcements, arriving at Camden on August 13th, increasing the effective British troop strength to 2,239 men. Gates ordered a night march to commence at 10 p.m. on August 15th, despite his army of 3,052 men, of which two-thirds were militia, having never maneuvered together. Unfortunately, their evening meal, which someone probably poisoned, acted as a laxative while they marched, with Armand's horse in the lead. On a collision course was Cornwallis's army, also on a 10 p.m. night march, with Tarleton's dragoons in the lead. A short period of confusion ensued when both forces collided around 2 a.m., but both sides soon separated, not wanting to fight at night. Gates formed up before a first light. On his right flank he placed Mordecai Gist's 2nd Maryland Brigade, three regiments, and the Delaware Regiment, with Baron DeKalb in overall command of the right wing. On his left flank he placed Caswell's 1800 North Carolina Militia, to the left of them were Stevens' 700 Virginians, and behind those Virginians were 120 men of Armand's Legion. Gates and his staff stayed behind, way behind, and way behind the reserve force, which was Smallwood's 1st Maryland Regiment, which was kept about 200 yards behind the battle line. Thus the total number of Continentals on the field numbered 900. Gates placed seven guns along that line, manned by about 100 men, also present, but whose disposition was unknown, were 70 mounted volunteer South Carolinians. Gates' formation, though a typical British practice of the time, and by the way, Gates was once a British commander, who told Washington he wanted to fight for the American side, placed his weakest troops against the most experienced British regiments, while his best troops would face only the weaker elements of the British forces. Cornwallis had roughly 2,239 men, Remember, Gates had 900 men on the field, and Cornwallis's men included Loyalist militia and volunteers of Ireland. Cornwallis also had the infamous and highly experienced Tarleton's Legion, who were cavalry and formidable in a pursuit situation. Cornwallis formed his army into two brigades. On the right was Lieutenant Colonel James Webster, facing the inexperienced militia with the 23rd Royal Welsh Fusiliers and the 33rd Regiment of Foot. Lord Rawdon was in command of the left, facing the Continental Infantry with the Irish Volunteers, Bannistrade Tarleton's Infantry, and the Loyalist Troops. In reserve, Cornwallis had two battalions of the 71st Regiment of Foot and Tarleton's Cavalry Force. He also placed four guns in the British center. 
As Gates had done, Cornwallis placed his more experienced units on the right flank and his less experienced units on the left flank. Gates ordered Stevens and DeKalb to attack while Cornwallis issued the same order to Webster. The 800-strong 33rd Fusiliers advanced with bayonets toward the 2,500 soldiers in the Virginia and North Carolina militia. The militia, however, had never used bayonets before. The American left wing collapsed as the Virginians and then the North Carolinians fled. The Virginians fled so fast that they only suffered three wounded. The North Carolinians fled all the way back to Hillsboro, North Carolina. According to Williams, referring to the British charge, the impetuosity with which they advanced, firing and huzzahing, threw the whole body of militia into such a panic that they generally threw down their loaded arms and fled in the utmost consternation. The unworthy example of the Virginians was almost instantly followed by the North Carolinians. Furthermore, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, then Governor of Virginia, Picture it as bad as you possibly can, and it will not be as bad as it really is. A member of the North Carolina militia, Garrett Watts, later confessed, It was instantaneous. There was no effort to rally, no encouragement to fight. Officers and men joined in the flight. I threw away my gun and ran. Rawdon's troops advanced in two charges, but heavy fire repulsed his regiments. The Continental troops then launched a counterattack, which came close to breaking Rawdon's line, which began to falter. Cornwallis rode to his left flank and steadied Rawdon's men. Instead of pursuing the fleeing militia, Webster wheeled to the left, into the Continentals. One of the North Carolina militia brigades that had been stationed next to the Delaware line held its ground, the only militia unit to do so. DeKalb called up the reserve 1st Maryland Brigade to support the 2nd, but they could get no closer than several hundred feet. However, as Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Ford of the 6th Maryland Regiment stated to Williams' entreaties, We are outnumbered and outflanked. See the enemy charge with bayonets. With the British closing in on three sides, Cornwallis ordered Tarleton's cavalry to charge into the rear of the Continental Line. The cavalry charge broke up the formation of the Continental troops, who finally broke and fled. However, Gist was able to move 100 Continentals in good order through a swamp where the cavalry could not follow. Additionally, about 50 to 60 Maryland Line Continentals under the leadership of Major Archibald Anderson, Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard, and Captain Robert Kirkwood were able to retreat in good order. According to Tarleton, rout and slaughter ensued in every quarter. DeKalb, attempting to rally his men, was unhorsed and would die of his numerous wounds, eleven in all, eight by bayonet and three by musket balls, two days later, as a British prisoner. After just one hour of combat, the American troops had been utterly defeated, suffering over 2,000 casualties. Tarleton's cavalry pursued and harried the retreating Continental troops for some 22 miles before drawing rain. By that evening, Gates, a coward at heart, mounted on a swift horse and had taken refuge 60 miles away in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. According to Charles Stedman, one of Cornwallis's officers, the road for some miles was strewn with the wounded and killed who had been overtaken by the Legion in their pursuit. The numbers of dead horses, broken wagons, 
and baggage scattered on the road formed a perfect scene of horror and confusion. Arms, knapsacks, and accoutrements found were innumerable. Such was the terror and dismay of the Americans. Dark days, bad commanders, things were looking very bad for the Continental Army and their Whig supporters in the South. The British casualties were 68 killed, 245 wounded, and 11 missing. David Ramsey wrote, 290 American wounded prisoners were carried into Camden after this action. Of this number, 206 were Continentals, 82 were North Carolina militia, and 2 were Virginia militia. The resistance made by each corps may in some degree be estimated from the number of wounded. The Americans lost the whole of their artillery, 8 field pieces, upwards of 200 wagons, and the greatest part of their baggage. A letter from Cornwallis to Lord George Germain, dated 21st of August, 1780, said that his army took about 1,000 prisoners, many of whom were wounded, on August 18th. There are many reasons given for Gates' defeat. The most prominent are these. Gates, as a former British officer, was accustomed to the traditional British deployment of the most experienced regiments on the place of honor, the right flank of the battle line. Gates had therefore placed the Continental regiments on his right flank and the massive militia which had joined him, of whom nearly all the Virginians had never been in a battle, on the left flank, facing the most experienced British regiments. Gates was also too far behind his troops to observe the battle or see what the British were doing. Tarleton claims Gates made four errors, including not taking a stronger position on Saunders Creek before Cornwallis arrived, moving his army at night, the placement of his militia, and the adjustment of his disposition just before battle. Aside from tactics on the battlefield, Gates had also screwed up with several strategic errors before joining the battle. His aggressive movement brought his forces deep into pro-British territory where residents still loyal to the crown would provide no supplies, no food, nor join his army. So far from their supply lines, Gates' forces were weakened by lack of adequate food, many of them falling victim to diarrhea. Gates took great confidence in his victory at Saratoga and tried to make himself look like a good commander, but erred in mapping the inexperience of Burgoyne who was his opponent in that battle at Saratoga. On to Cornwallis, who was a gifted strategist. Cornwallis and Burgoyne, not the same. Gates proceeded onwards to Hillsborough, a distance of 180 miles, where he arrived on the 19th, and then composed his report to Congress on the 20th of August. The report to the President of the Continental Congress, Samuel Huntington, began, who was probably his close friend, Samuel Huntington, began, in deepest distress and anxiety of mind, I am obliged to acquaint Your Excellency with the total defeat of the troops under my command. Ten days later, he screwed up enough courage to write a letter to his commander, George Washington, in which he wrote, But if being unfortunate is solely a reason sufficient for removing me from command, I shall most cheerfully submit to the orders of Congress and resign an office few generals would be anxious to possess. Which tells you a lot about the kind of man that Gates was. Gates was removed from control of the Southern Army. Major General Greene, George Washington's original preference, was subsequently given command of the Southern Army. Gates, who had strong political connections in the Continental Congress, 
successfully avoided inquiries into the debacle. Actually, he should have been shot as a deserter. By September, Cornwallis, with coastal South Carolina in his grasp, again had undertaken the invasion of North Carolina, gaining a foothold in Charlotte, a center of Whig power, after a skirmish there late that month. The sole southern region in the path of Cornwallis's northward march, which had remained undisturbed by the course of the war, lay in the foothills and ranges of the Alleghenies, stretching through northwestern South Carolina, western North Carolina, and into the present eastern Tennessee. Only here, among the frontier settlements of the independent mountain yeomen, could the patriotic Whigs find refuge. Late in the summer of 1780, from their despised enemies, the propertied Royalist and Tory forces aroused by Cornwallis. Occupied with establishing a new frontier and protecting their rude homes from the nearer threat of the border Indians, the mountain men had been little concerned with the war on the seaboard. The influx of partisan Whig forces seeking sanctuary first brought the effects of war vividly before them. But from the free and comparatively peaceful existence, the backwoodsmen were soon to be aroused to the protection of their homes and possessions by a threat of direct aggression. And that threat came from Major Patrick Ferguson of Cornwallis's command, who, after Camden, had been ordered to operate in the South Carolina Piedmont to suppress the Whig opposition remaining there and to arouse the backcountry Tories, organizing their strength in support of the British cause. Encountering little organized Whig resistance and having rapidly perfected the Tory strength in the Piedmont, Ferguson, in September of 1780, undertook a foray against Gilbertown, a Whig outpost in North Carolina near the present town of Rutherfordton. Fearful of such an invasion, the border leaders, Isaac Shelby of Sullivan County and John Sevier of Washington County, North Carolina, which are both now in Tennessee, had hurried to the Watauga settlements and called for volunteers to defeat Ferguson. They also forwarded urgent appeals for aid to Wilkes, Surrey, Burke, and Rutherford counties in North Carolina, and to Washington County in Virginia. From Gilberttown, early in September, Ferguson dispatched his famed invidious threat over the mountains to the backwoodsmen, warning them that if they did not desist from their opposition to the British arms and take protection under his standard, he would march his army over the mountains, hang their leaders, and lay their country waste with fire and sword. Actually, this was but an empty gesture from Ferguson, who was then preparing one final foray across the border in South Carolina, before making a junction with Cornwallis at Charlotte. Yet, to the freedom-loving frontier leaders, that threat became a challenge which strengthened their determination to destroy the invader. Thus spurred, they assembled quickly, each in hunting garb, with knapsack, blanket, and long hunting rifle, most of them mounted, but some afoot. They were united by a strong resolve to destroy Ferguson and his Tory force, even though they had many a brother, cousin, or even father among the backcountry men under Ferguson's command. In fact, the partisan and internecine warfare which raged during the revolution through the southern highlands and along the Piedmont, with members of the same families arrayed against each other as Whig versus Tory, reached a climax in the King's Mountain expedition and engagement. Assembling near the present Elizabethton, Tennessee, late in September, the mountaineers circled southeastward into upper South Carolina in swift pursuit of Ferguson. 
joining the forces of Shelby and Sevier were the Virginians under Campbell, and as the expedition marched southward, it was augmented by the border fighters under McDowell and Cleveland. Though characterized by daring impulse, the purpose of this strategic frontier uprising had been conceived coolly by these leaders, and its execution in pursuit and assault was to be brilliantly carried out. At the Cowpens in Upper South Carolina, the expedition was joined October 6th by further volunteers under local Whig leaders, including Chronicle, Williams, Lacey, and Hawthorne. Recruits brought definite word of Ferguson's whereabouts near King's Mountain. And there, in a final council of war, were selected 910 stalwart fighting men, all mounted, all frontiersmen and fighters, who immediately moved through the night upon the position of Ferguson's provincial corps and Tory militia, now encamped atop King's Mountain Spur. Join us next Sunday night for the Battle of King's Mountain, the turning point of the American Revolution. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We encourage reviews, and here are some recent ones for you. The first one, five stars. This is my favorite podcast. I started listening to this podcast about a year ago, and I'm ready to stop my Audible account. The reader is very good, and the content, there is something for everyone. So interesting and so educational. Keep them coming. That one from Moody Molly, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, my favorite podcast, five stars. I've learned so much from this podcast. I've listened to many episodes twice because there's so much information. I often can't take it all in the first listen. In addition, there's such a large variety of topics that I'm learning about stuff I never knew existed. If you have a thirst for knowledge, this is the podcast for you. That one from I Love History, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Always look forward to the new shows. Check out the treasure trove of previous episodes. Unbelievable history recounted and unearthed here. Fave Podcast. That one from You Want to Go? Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Jetloff, five stars. Best explanation I've heard so far of the Jetloff mystery. Great job. That one for Apple TX Reviewer, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, tales well told. Great historical research, told. Earnest delivery. That one from Bartleby the Listener, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, awesome. This is a great podcast. I listen to the stories faithfully on my way to work at work, or on days off having my morning coffee. The stories are very well researched and told, and I look forward to the next episode. Thanks, and keep it up. That one from Pooza, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, five stars, love it. This is why we have phones and podcasts. Thanks, John. That one from Chico Artist, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, my new standard, five stars, a wide range of fascinating topics and individuals. Very enjoyable and well-researched podcast with a personable host. That one from Oro de Dio, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great story, five stars. This one referring to the story we did on the USS Johnston called In Harm's Way. I've heard and seen the story on YouTube many other places, but you really did a great job. The heroism and bravery that day of American naval officers and sailors is unbelievable. The way you tell their story should be told in history classrooms around the U.S., Good job.
That one from Wolfie, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. They are greatly appreciated, and they really help our show when others find them. Stay tuned for Part 2 next Sunday night at 8 p.m. and the Battle of Kings Mountain, which was the battle that turned the entire American Revolution and began the path to victory at Yorktown. Everybody stay safe. We'll see you next Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for joining us. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.